This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line here at 88.7, broadcasting through the Internet around the world at WAGP.net. If you are a first-time listener, we're so glad you can be with us. The next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a particular challenge or theological issue or the application of a passage that you're trying to understand and as it relates to your life. Well, if we can be of help by God's grace for the next hour, we'll be taking your questions. There's many ways you can deliver those to us. You can call directly, as you just heard, 843-525-1859, the South Carolina Exchange, 843-525-1859. We give live callers preference. You can go on the air live. Some prefer simply to dictate their question. It'll be shot to us here in the studio. In addition, uh, you can email us here directly into the studio at TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Well, I think uh, Walt is behind the board this morning. I think we're ready to begin, so let's go ahead and get started, Walt. All right, Pastor Carl. Our first question comes from Candice. Uh, she asked, could Dr. Brogy recommend a good commentary for us to have at home? I am learning so much from his sermons. We have found a solid expository preaching church, which is also good. However, the church is Calvinist, and we are not. So I am looking for a good commentary to have at home to help us study Scripture independently that is not from a Calvinist viewpoint. All right, so Candace writes us from California, and I understand um, when you use the word Calvinist, it can have a lot of implications to it. You're Calvinist in some respects because everything that John Calvin obviously taught was not heretical. Um, there are many aspects of Calvinism that you would embrace. Even the tulip theory, which uh, summarizes his um, view of soteriology, his doctrine of salvation, there would be aspects, no doubt, that you would affirm. I'm sure you affirm the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that you're eternally secure, you can't lose salvation. That stands for the P. Uh, I'm sure you would probably affirm uh, total depravity that you're dead in your sin. So there are aspects of Calvinism that are true. There are certainly some that are highly debatable, but Calvinism is much larger than obviously just his view of salvation. It affected every realm of culture because he had a false view of Israel and thought the church had replaced Israel he ran Geneva and Switzerland like a theocracy. So he had a man executed for heresy, burned at the stake, and he said, make sure the wood is extra green. Um, so, you know, he, he was confused in a number of areas. And I know people almost worship the guy, but he's human. We're all fallible. And um, he had some fallible aspects to his doctrine. With that said, 
Uh, there are some good general commentaries to start. I would encourage you maybe to consider the Bible Knowledge Commentary, BKC for short. Uh, it's in two volumes. You'll find a lot of like one-volume commentaries in the Bible, like a very popular one for decades has been the Wycliffe Bible Commentary. It's one volume. Obviously, uh, you can only cover so much in one volume. And what I have found with most of the single-volume commentaries is they tend to address the obvious, things that you can already figure out for your own or cross-reference, and it's not that difficult. The BKC is in two volumes. In fact, the Old Testament volume is as thick as the Wycliffe Bible Commentaries, one volume on the whole of Scripture. But they tend to deal with the less than obvious, the more difficult texts that you will uh, encounter and embrace. And so that would be a great tool. And what is so good about it is at the back of each book of the Bible that they cover, there's a suggested bibliography. And I will say their bibliography is written on several levels for some who maybe have a knowledge of Greek and Hebrew, what we would call a critical commentary where it interacts with the original languages. And then they have some others that are written on a more maybe popular view. Uh, but it would give you a good starting place for some maybe sound commentaries. And again, they have that at the end of each book of all 66 books of the Bible. Uh, there was a pastor by the name of Warren Wearsby. He pastored Moody Church in Chicago for a number of years and then left there, taught, and actually wrote a number of books. They were called the B series, B this, B that. And initially, he published two volumes on the New Testament. It's called the Bible Exposition Commentary, written on a very popular level, easy to understand. A sound Bible teacher, would you agree with every point? Maybe not. (coughs) Excuse me, I don't know of two people who agree on everything, but on the essentials. And then, you know, he lived until like a year ago. He died, I think he was 93, and... Uh, he finally finished the B-series on the Old Testament. So now he had a um, six volumes. You can buy the B-series called the Bible Exposition Complete, or you can just buy the New Testament, two volumes. Because um, at least the, the, the former, the two volumes, had been around for so long, you could find it on Amazon used or at half.com, which is the uh, eBay side of used books and type in Warren Wearsby, W-I-R-W-I-E-R-S-B-E, Bible Exposition Commentary, and I'm sure both sides, two and six volumes, will come up. And, you know, you can buy it for a significantly reduced price. Same with the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It's like $170 new unless you get it on sale somewhere. But you could probably find, in fact, I recently found some for a family, and it was like $20 plus shipping, So because it's been around for a long time. Uh, So you might consider either of those. Those would be great reference tools and will get you thinking, and they're written by a number of sound Bible teachers. Obviously, the six-volume one by a single Bible teacher, Warren Wearsby. The Bible Knowledge Commentary that Dallas Seminary put out in the 1980s though its general editor would be John Walvoord and Dr. Zook, both friends and uh, professors at DTS when I was there, 
whom I studied under and privileged to, uh, they're the general editors. Uh, they wrote a few of the books themselves, but a, a multiplicity of authors. And that's healthy because typically no one is going to do a thorough job on every book of the Bible. So when you see a commentary series that's written by a single author, it's going to be limited. Like some people will spend you know, 20 years writing a commentary on one book of the Bible, uh, and that's going to be their premier commentary that they might produce in incredible detail and will be very, very helpful. So for someone to do every book of the Bible, it's going to be you know, a little bit more limited. But again, Wearsby was his sound brother and produced some very, very helpful material for the body of Christ. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, our next question comes from Bob, who is here in Okatee, South Carolina. He says, I noticed throughout the Bible where prophets are listed, John the Baptist is never listed as a prophet, even though Jesus in Matthew 10 declares him to be a prophet. Bob was just curious about this question. Yeah, so there are some prophets in the Scripture that have a book after their name, uh, like, say, uh, Zechariah or Zephaniah or Malachi or Haggai or so on. Those are prophets of God. There are other men that God declares to be prophets that don't necessarily have a book written by them. And so John the Baptist didn't write a single book in the New Testament. In fact, he was the last of all the Old Testament prophets. In fact, Jesus gave a compliment of him when maybe John's uh, you know, validity was being questioned by some of the people. And he said there was never a man born of a woman greater than John, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Uh, John um, never lived to see Pentecost, and though he was one of about 500 people under the Old Covenant that had some kind of a special relationship to uh, the Spirit of God, he was even filled with the Spirit while he was in his mother's womb and such that when Elizabeth came and met Mary, John kicked, greeted when he heard the voice of Mary and, uh, you know, again, amazing, supernatural, uh, but still a, an Old Testament prophet, never lived to, to have the permanent indwelling of the Spirit, the promise of the New Covenant, the New Testament, that prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel echo, echo. And then there are people that you wouldn't think would be a prophet, like, okay, there's Abel who comes and brings an offering to the Lord. It's recorded in Genesis 4, and Abel's prof, um, offering is accepted, Cain's is rejected. And some would say, well, because Abel brought his best and Cain brought his less than best. Nothing in the text even hints to that. That's eisegesis. That's reading into the text. Um, Cain, no doubt, brought the very best of what he could produce, but therein lies the problem, where Abel came on the basis of faith. We know that because Hebrews 11 says, by faith, Abel offered a better offering. So he came on the basis of blood. Uh, He came and brought animals because God had revealed prior to this that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And Abel would have learned this as Cain from Adam and Eve when they told the story many, many times over and what had happened. And when they tried to cover their shame and guilt by the work of their hands, God intervened, stepped in, and killed the very first animals 
uh, the very first death in all the universe since God's creation had started. And he taught a lesson, and, and Abel believed that. Now, you wouldn't know that Abel was a prophet, but the New Testament reveals he was a prophet. Jesus does. He indicted the religious leaders of his day with the blood of all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. So there's New Testament divine commentary falling from the, the, the lips of Jesus that Abel was a prophet of God. Now, more than likely, the Jews understood him to be that, but even if they didn't, Jesus revealed that he was. You say, well, why is that significant? Because in Acts 10, it tells us all the prophets. So anyone that you see the title prophet, like Abraham is a prophet. Does he have a book written after his name? No. King David was a prophet. He assumed two offices, not only the kingly office, but he is also called a prophet of God. And so that's significant, like with Abel, because in Acts chapter 10, when you meet Peter, and he's addressing uh, what had taken place in Cornelius's household. If you remember, one man's heart was open. When your heart is open, light responded to brings more light, and God moved heaven and earth to get the gospel to Cornelius, and God gives Peter a vision, and uh, he brings the two together that he might preach the word of God. And, and of course, it says here in Acts chapter 10, and I'm reading now verse 43, of him, of of Jesus, contextually of Yeshua, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So sometimes we think, well, you know, these Old Testament prophets didn't understand much. Well, it's true that we understand a whole lot more than they did. It's called progressive revelation, not the way the terms the term is used sometimes by liberals today who, who argue that God is still progressively giving us new truth. And so all these people have been enlightened and said, well, the church has been wrong on, you know, homosexuality and these other moral issues, and God has enlightened us with this progressive revelation. That's not how historically the term has been used by theologians. When we use the term progressive revelation— we're saying that God unfolded over the course of time. So obviously Isaiah knew more than Abel did, but they both knew that they were preaching about the coming Messiah and that the Messiah's blood would be offered. Now, did Abel know how his blood would be shed? No, but Isaiah did, as did King David, who lives about a thousand years before Christ, that he would be pierced through for our iniquity. And so even the means by which the blood would be shed was unfolded progressively over the course of time. So it's a great question, thoughtful question. Thanks for asking it, Bob. Let's go to the next question. 843-525-1859. If you have a question for today's Bible line, again, that's 843-525-1859. Our next question comes from D in Hardyville, South Carolina. They say, we are studying Esther J. Vernon McGee wrote that the Jews who remained in Persia were out of the will of God. I would appreciate your thoughts on this statement, especially in regard to Esther and Mordecai and how God used them as well as Nehemiah. Well, it's a good question. Certainly, no doubt, some of the Jews were out of the will of God uh, there in Persia because God, after 70 years, had prophesied through Jeremiah that the um, deportation, the time of being carried off, 
by the Babylonians as a judgment. And the 70 years was not just a number God pulled out of the air. For 490 years, they had ignored what God had said, that every seventh year the land was to rest, and they thought they were smarter than God, and so they farmed seven years in a row, and and on that sabbatical year, they ignored it, and so God said, well, I'm going to give the land rest, and he gave it 70 years rest, and of course, there were other issues that God judged them for, largely for idolatry, and so at the end of 70 years, they were, were to return, and just as they left in three deportations, they came back in three phases, but ultimately, ideally, they should have come back. So that's partly true. But does that mean that everyone who stayed was in sin? Certainly not. Number one, uh, there were people like Esther and Mordecai, uh, some of whom were probably not even born at the end of the, <clears throat> the 70 years, and some who were small children. And so when their parents decided to stay, they were under the authority of their parents. And they found themselves there living in Persia. Uh, Of course, it appears that Esther's parents were dead. And so she was under Mordecai's authority. And he, at some point, was under his parents' authority. But she was definitely young. She was of marriageable age, probably, you know, 18 to 25, somewhere in there. People, you know, have tried to create these ages that there is no basis for in Jewish theology or tradition that, you know, someone like Mary was 12 or 13. That's disgusting to me, and there's no evidences for that. Most Jewish women got married 16, 17, 18 years and later, uh, many in their uh, late teens. In either case, They were there, and they were there in the will of God because there was a large number of Jews that needed to be protected and cared for. And so Mordecai reminds Esther that the Lord had her there in Persia and chosen by a pagan king uh, for a purpose for such a time as this, and God uses her to preserve the Jewish nation. And so it's not by accident. And so you find people like this, Nehemiah and others, that you cannot definitively say, well, they were all in sin. That would be less than uh, faithful to the text. So good question. Let's go. And by the way, I love J. Vernon McGee. He was a great man, an expositor. Uh, He used to have a show. It still aired on some Christian radio stations, even though he's been dead for, I don't know, 25, 30 years now. It's called Through the Bible And he would go through the Bible in five years. And even with the antiquated antiquated recording techniques that he had before he died, he put on tape and then in a vault um, the best of his five years through the Bible. That, of course, has all been translated to, you know, digital material, and you hear it in some places. All right, Pastor Carl, uh, it appears we have a live caller. Go ahead. Good morning. You are live with Pastor Carl on the Bible line. Go ahead. Uh, good morning, Dr. Brogy. Uh, it's uh, wonderful to be able to speak with you. Uh, my name is Keith Murray. I'm calling from eastern Kentucky. Um, I've been a Christian for about 15 years. Um, like most Christians, saved by the grace of God. Uh, yes. And kept by the grace of God. Um 
I'm grateful to be able to talk to you because you uh, and your ministry has meant so much to me and my wife. Uh, you're such a blessing. Your teaching, your uh, your sermons, uh, we greatly enjoy it. We both study. We don't always study the same things. I, I might be studying in one room, uh, and she's studying in another room and another topic from you. But um, the question I, I'm calling the question I have is I've been in your uh, studies on Revelation for about a year, maybe a year and a half, and I feel like I've just got a glass full of it, and that's all. And uh, uh, I'm having problems with understanding uh, the chronological order of some things. I understand the skeleton of it as you've laid it out. Um, I'm having problems uh, specifically in the area of uh, the two witnesses. The, when is the appearance of the two witnesses? Is it at the beginning of the seven years, or is it in the middle of the seven years? Uh, the problem I've had with believing it's in the middle of the seven years is by the end, I don't think there's going to be that many people listening or watching their TVs to see uh, those two resurrected. And I'll give you your question, sir. It's a great question. So I would like um, most Bible ex- expositors would put them in the first half of the tribulation. Let me just give some definition. And thanks for calling today, Pete. And appreciate your encouragement and your prayers and uh, we're we're thrilled that Search the Scriptures is able to get into places uh, across the world. But we're told here in Revelation chapter 11 about these uh, two witnesses, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So we know right off that um, the seven-year period is divided into two equal halves, of 1,260 days, or what we typically call three and a half years, based on a biblical year and how a Jew measured a year at 360 days. And and that's why they would have these insert months every so often, because they use a lunar solar calendar, or we just use a solar calendar, and the Muslims just use a lunar calendar. Anyway, it says if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out from their mouth, and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, they must they will be killed in this way. So these are real humans, but with uh, their fire-breathing humans. Uh, they have a, a unique power and authority. Of course, if you've listened to the Revelation, there's a lot of uh, debate as to who they are. Um, no one can be absolutely dogmatic. But we do know that the prophet Malachi tells us that Elijah the prophet is coming back during the great and terrible day of the Lord and the beginning of the day of the Lord. There are some very bright, wonderful aspects to the day of the Lord, but it starts with gloom. It mimics a biblical day where things get darker and darker and darker and then bright and then darker, darker, darker. And that's the pattern uh, eschatologically of how God's going to unfold Uh, The seven-year tribulation, where it gets increasively worse through the 21 judgments that unfold, Uh, then it becomes incredibly bright when Jesus comes back, and we have this long day, so to speak, of a thousand years, but at the end of the thousand years, it gets dark again, where 
uh, some of the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren born during the tribulation, uh, during the millennial reign, because only believers enter the kingdom. But those who enter in their natural bodies who have survived the great tribulation period as believers, they'll enter into the coming kingdom. And they'll be able to have children, and some of their children won't respond. That may seem amazing to people, but this is why the Bible speaks of the Messiah ruling with a rod of iron. No need to rule with a rod of iron if you have all born-again people in resurrected bodies who can no longer sin. But that's part of the reason. Anyway, uh, these are real people, and I suspect they are Elijah and Moses one, because we know Elijah is coming back during this time. We know that the ministry of these two men mimics that of Elijah and Moses. And we do know that Jesus, when he gives a glimpse of the coming kingdom, meets on the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah and Moses. So um, I think if I were to make an educated biblical guess, that that would be my best shot at it. It said when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. This is a reference to the Antichrist. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Gomorrah. Then those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days, will not permit their bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. And so you have these uh, lost people celebrating their death. Why? Because they were bringing judgment. Not only are there the seal, uh, trumpet, and bold judgments, but there are also the judgments that God brings through these men. And the focus of the judgments is to bring people to repentance. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here, and they went up. And so now they're gone. Okay, so with that said, when you come into, um, there's kind of a parenthetical note in chapter 12, talking about Israel and what God's plans are for them to protect them. And then chapter 13, that helps us to understand why they, are, as a Jewish nation, will need protecting. And so we read here, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. So there's a second beast. So there are two beasts in the Revelation. The first He has over 30 different titles. His most popular name, of course, is the Antichrist. And then there's this second beast who's also called the false prophet. So you really have this unholy trinity, Satan who takes the place of God the Father. You have the Antichrist or the first beast who takes the place of God the Son. And the third or the second beast or the third member of this unholy trinity who, like the Holy Spirit, points people to the Antichrist and tries to convince them to believe. And so here in the 13th chapter, we discover what is going to happen. It's called by the prophet Daniel, the abomination of desolation. When uh, something dramatic is going to be a game changer during this seven-year period. 
And it's during this time that we are told specifically at the end of the 13th chapter, and it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast. So the fact that the beast, the Antichrist, goes in the temple and makes himself out to be God would not in and of itself be the abomination of desolation, though that's included in the package because of what goes with it. Jesus obviously went into the temple of God as God, and for him to say that he was God was not an abomination because it was true. And if the Jewish people during the time of the tribulation period are studying the scriptures and recognize, well, Messiah is not just going to be a man, he's going to be God. A baby will be born unto us, and the baby's name, among other titles, will be called Mighty God. And so when the Bible pictures Messiah, he's not simply a human, he is God who's taken on our humanity. And so in and of itself, if if the Antichrist went in and said, I am the promised Messiah, I'm God, if it were true, it wouldn't be an abomination. But what is the hint to them that this cannot be true? And the hint is, is what we read here. It was given to him, the false prophet, the second beast, to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. And of course, it goes on to say, you cannot buy or sell anything unless you take his mark, his insignia, 666. And so it's this act of idolatry that would tip every Jew off Immediately, there's no way this guy who claims to be Messiah could be the Messiah for the simple reason that the Messiah would not commit or allow an act of idolatry to take place. And so that's the corker. So I say all that to say that these two witnesses that you ask about, they die before this. And you're absolutely right. And and by the way, the timing is definitive based on Matthew 24, if we let Scripture interpret Scripture. And, of course, in the Olivet Discourse, I'm just flipping over there right now to Matthew chapter 24, uh, Jesus makes an incredible statement that he cannot come back until the Jewish people acknowledge that he is the Messiah. And uh, then he goes on, and they ask him about the destruction of the temple and the future of Israel. And He speaks prophecy to them, and in verses 4 through 14, he speaks of the birth pangs, and it's not by accident that Matthew 24, 4 through 14 perfectly fits the sealed judgments, and I'll show you how this relates to your question in a moment, how it perfectly fits the sealed judgments of Revelation. Uh, So the birth pangs, people say, well, we're seeing the birth pangs. We're not. We're seeing the pregnancy You have to have a pregnancy before the water can break and birth pangs begin. And so I think what we're seeing today is the pregnancy, uh, a precursor to many of the things that are going to happen that will happen on a level that we've never seen. And then the midpoint event. How do I know it's the midpoint event? Because if you listen to my series on the prophet Daniel, which I taught before Revelation. And I told our congregation, I said, usually if a pastor is committed to the exposition of Scripture and he wants to teach Revelation, he'll almost always teach Daniel first. 
Why? Because Daniel's really the schematic to understanding Revelation. And in the Daniel 9, 70 weeks prophecy, it speaks of the 70th week. Jews had not just a week of days, but a week of years. And so a seven-year period that in the middle of this seven-year period, the Antichrist is going to defile the temple. And again, we have commentary in the New Testament in 2 Thessalonians 2. He makes himself out to be God. There's an act of idolatry that further defines it, but it is pre-foreshadowed, uh, I might say, uh, in the first half of Daniel 11 that speaks of a man who would do it uh, after Daniel had died, and then in the second half of 11 of, of a man who would do it at the end of uh, the church age, after the church has been removed. So therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, verse 15, which was spoken through the prophet Daniel, so where does that place the events that follow? Right in the middle of the seven-year period. And we just read that these two witnesses die before the middle of the seven-year period because that's when the Antichrist goes in, defiles the temple, And so we go from a one-world multiplicity of religions, and we're seeing the platform set for that. They just had in October a conference uh, that encompassed 2,500 people, um, religious leaders from across the planet, uh, major people. We're, We're talking about right down to the Pope, the head of the Roman Catholic Church, coming together, and they signed this covenant for basically a one world religion and denying the exclusivity. The Pope, Francis, denied the exclusivity of the Christian message that there's salvation in no one else. He signed a document where he put his signature denying the uniqueness of Christ. That ought to be enough to alert any thinking person that he is a false prophet. So again, the mechanics of what is going to happen is being put in place in our day. When you add to the fact that Israel's in the land, you know you're in that final time frame. And so this event happens, and we go from this multiplicity of religions to a singularity of religion where you worship the Antichrist and him alone. So it's no longer, well, you can be a Hindu or a Catholic or this or that or just choose whatever you want and blend them all together. No, now it's you worship me, and if you don't take the mark— that symbolizes your commitment to me, you can't buy or sell and you'll be executed. And millions of people will be executed. So chronologically, it fits perfectly with the revelation where John places it. Now, certainly there are times when John will give a, a preview of what is coming, and, um, but, but not certainly with this. And, and you're right to get to a comment you made there's not a lot of conversion that takes place in the second half of the tribulation. In fact, the 144,000 and their success is measured in the first half where John in Revelation 7, because of their testimony, sees an untold number like the sands of the seashore from every tribe, nation, and tongue. That's not to say that people can't get saved after the tribulation. Many will, and many will have to make a decision. Am I going to officially renounce Jesus at this point? and take the mark of the beast, in which case that's an irreversible decision. It cannot be undone at that point, or will I embrace Yeshua as the Messiah? So um, as the judgment follows, of course, in in Revelation 8, uh, 
when the seventh seal is open, unlike the seal judgments where you can see only one at a time, when the seventh seal is open, you can see all the trumpet judgments and all the bowl judgments. And there's silence in heaven for 30 minutes. Here you've got heaven filled with praise and worship, but it's like the breath of people are just taken away. That doesn't mean that they're observing uh, what is taking place on earth, but they have been signaled what is about to take place on earth as to the judgments that will follow. And uh, most people uh, will not respond, but some will, some will. So great question. I appreciate it. And you might want to listen to, in addition, I'm doing a series called God's Prophetic Schedule. And I'm kind of giving all the highlights, and that might chronologically put some things together for you. I've done over 20 messages in it. I think I still have another 10 or so, but um, it will put the chronology maybe uh, in a broader 10,000-foot range of view uh, a little clearer in your thinking. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, Dr. Brogy. 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Dr. Brogy on today's Bible line, our next question comes from Andrew out of Savannah, Georgia. He says, Dr. Brogy, have you done a series on the book of Isaiah? Isaiah 9-6 is a much-loved verse I learned as a child, clearly knowing it, it, it was talking about the birth of Jesus. Over the years and learning more about the Bible, Isaiah continues to blow me away with all of the prophecies and hundreds of years of predating the New Testament. Can you give me some background information on the earlier verses of Isaiah 9? Okay, good, good question. Um, have I done a series on Isaiah? Not really. We have an Old Testament survey course, um, and that might be uh, helpful to you. Um, but I, I certainly have taught portions of Isaiah from time to time. In fact, the last couple of years in my quiet time, I've been going back and forth between two passages, but one is Isaiah 53, at really the end of 52, I thought, well, I just want to exegete this. I mean, I've taught it before, and it's turning into a book. It's 453 pages of notes right now, computer pages of notes. I might turn it into a commentary, but so disgusted with the Christian publishing houses in America that are so compromised. Um, In either case, lay that aside, Isaiah chapter 9 is an interesting text. We often hear at least this section read at Christmas. Most of us at least know verse 6, for a child will be born to us and a son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There'll be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David or over his kingdom to establish it, not hold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will accomplish this. But the chapter opens with with these words, it says, but there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now the gloom that's being mentioned is unfolded in Isaiah 8. If you remember, because of idolatry, God promised to judge the nation. And he first judges the ten northern tribes. They were split by this point, if you remember, because of Solomon's 
um, compromise. After Solomon's death, God said he'd wait because of the sake of his father David, the special relationship they had. He splits the kingdom, and so when Solomon's son steps up on the throne, Rehoboam, uh, he is unmerciful. He makes the tasks far worse, not judicial in any respect, and the kingdom splits into 10 northern tribes that at that point, what where prior the whole 12 tribes were called Israel, now just the 10 northern tribes are typically called Israel, and the two southern tribes uh, Judah and Benjamin are called Judah after the larger of the two. So when you read the Old Testament, you read prophets, you want to ask to whom are they writing? Are they writing to the northern kingdom? Are they writing to the southern kingdom? There's a few that write to both. Because if you understand to whom they are writing, it will really help you to understand the book. And so some wrote to the northern kingdom and God predicted that the Assyrians would come down and attack And later on, after they're gone, that happens around 722 B.C., about uh, 601, actually in three different uh, phases to 589, after the Assyrians are overthrown by the Babylonians, they come and take the southern kingdom. So you've got like Daniel, who's in the southern kingdom, and in the first deportation, he and his three friends are, are carried off. So Isaiah is speaking about gloom and doom, concerning the northern kingdom because of their idolatry. In fact, I'm looking back here at chapter 8, and in verse uh, 22 it says, Then they will look to the earth, and behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. And, of course, the Assyrians, um, you can read about them in books like, well, they're just a horrible, vicious people. And uh, they treated the people with no mercy, and the first to be attacked were those who are referenced here in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And yet the prophet also predicts the people, verse 2 of Isaiah 9, you're questioning the first opening verses, who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And again, he he's talking about these two tribes of the 12 tribes. And you don't have to wonder that because on occasion, God gives divine commentary in the New Testament. So in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus actually quotes the passage that you are referencing. It says, now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun in Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali, or some would say Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So if you remember in Nazareth, Jesus ministers, he opens the word of God, uh, the people are just blown away. They're amazed. They're, oh, they're in wonder at the gracious words that fall from his mouth. They love the preacher until the preacher gets too personal. And that's what happens even today. You get a little too personal and they don't like Pastor Carl anymore. You know, but a pastor who's faithful will preach the whole word of God. And so uh, he ends up, they try to murder him. He leaves there. Um, Short period of time follows, John dies, and Jesus ends up in Capernaum. Why Capernaum? 
Well, it's certainly strategic in terms it's on the um, a major route that traders would come through uh, that would cover Europe and Asia and other places. But it's a place, uh, Nehom, Capernehom, literally the the village of the comforter. Uh, now, whether he was related to the prophet Nahum, we don't know. But some guy named Nahum, and it's named after him, Capernaum, the village of the comforter. And Jesus certainly brought comfort to the people who lived in that area. Now, it's important, if you've ever wondered why Jesus chose Capernaum, part of it is based on the prophecy of Isaiah 9. That's the principal reason. The tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, which again were the first two to be carried off by the Assyrians there in the northern kingdom, um, they were beaten to a pulp and treated very, very viciously. But God then says in the next verse, no more gloom for her who's in anguish. So Capernaum is not the new home of Christ, and it's called his hometown. So when you think of Jesus, you should think of four places in terms of his earthly ministry, Bethlehem, the house of bread where he is born, Nazareth, Nazir, um, not by accident, as the prophet Isaiah also underscores, he's raised in Nazareth. His public ministry is in Capernaum. He is crucified, dead, buried, and risen, and ascended into heaven from Jerusalem. And of course, he comes back literally physically to Jerusalem. But again, the specifics here are so critical because there's no other place that could fit the prophecy of Isaiah. Magdala, uh, that's on the western shores of the Sea of Galilee, uh, but it cannot be said to be beyond or on the other side of the Jordan River. If you look on a map, that's obvious. Chorazin uh, was not by the Sea of Galilee, but it's inland some. Uh, Capernaum was the only city that met the criteria that Isaiah the prophet mentions that Jesus could have, in essence, <clears throat> fulfilled this prophecy at. We go to Capernaum when we go to Israel. The trip is over half full now. <coughs> Excuse me, it's about 60% full. And uh, it, I suspect, will be full in another month or so But God willing, we are going to Israel in September of 2023, and we're going to have an informational meeting that you can live stream if you're listening in another part of the United States on uh, Sunday, February the 5th, or for those that live locally in Beaufort County or environs thereof, you could come to the 11 o'clock service on February the 5th, and after the 11 o'clock service, five minutes after, we'll do an informational meeting not for those who are signed up, for those who are considering going. It's a trip of a lifetime. It's not that you need to go to Israel to understand the Bible. You certainly do not. Um, But it's the difference maybe between reading the Bible in living color in black and white. It's that dramatic, and it's really a life-changing event. But Capernaum is a critical spot, one of my favorite places to visit when we go there because Jesus used that as the headquarters in which to... um, launch his three-and-a-half-year public ministry? Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, our next question just came in from Faye, who lives in Georgia. Uh, Faye from Georgia has been talking to a neighbor about Christ, and he wants to know about those who have not had the opportunity to hear the gospel, like those who live in China. It is hard for him to understand how God could hold these people accountable. 
Another friend says she finds it difficult for God to be considered loving when he exercises eternal retribution on good Muslims. Well, this is a uh, fantastic question, and let me see if I can respond. Uh, Your your neighbor (laughs) illustrating with the Chinese is probably not the best illustration because there are more Chinese Christians alive on planet Earth than any other single people group. Uh, Some put the numbers as high as 100 million Chinese who are born again. We're not talking about nominal uh, Chinese Christians, but but the real thing. I've only been to China twice. I was supposed to go back in 2020 to do a conference for 4,000 pastors to teach them the discovery class material, which has all been translated into Mandarin because they said our biggest challenge, speaking with national uh, missionaries there, is we have all these new believers, but they don't seem to be grounded in the basics. And so I wrote a course that I've tweaked over the last 40 years. It's called Basic Discipleship. It's online at searchthescriptures.org. 23 of the 45 weeks are already up online with note-taking outlines and video to watch and follow along. But China is not a good example, but there are certainly places in the world where people have never heard the name of Christ. And God is a great God. Does God take delight in the um, eternal retribution of the lost? Certainly not. And by the way, I have a booklet. It's uh, available at Amazon uh, concerning the evangelization. How? What about those who have never heard? I think that's what we titled it. I don't make any money off of the books sold on Amazon. I wrote a number of different chapters for Ken Ham and Answers in Genesis and some of those chapters have been translated into little booklets that we make available at a broader, uh, to a broader audience. Um, but here's the basic truth that the Scripture teaches. Number one, all men know there is a God. I spoke to a lady just a couple days ago on the phone, and she visited the church, and she was delighted that I would take the time to call her, and I'll call every visitor if they'll leave a number and give me the opportunity to call them. Uh, she said, Pastor Carl, I don't really know if I believe in God because I was taught to believe in God or if I believe in God because I believe in God. And I said, well, you believe in God because you believe in God. She said, what do you mean? I said, because biblically speaking, there's no such thing as an atheist. And I said, now that's another question, how we know the Bible is true. And that was also a chapter Uh, that I produce her answers in Genesis, how to prove the Bible is true. And we give that to every person who comes to meet the pastor. And we make that available to those folks. But in either case, all men know there's a God, one through the creation and the other through their conscience within. Paul in Romans 1 gives no, no blessing or leeway to the idolater, the person who's worshiping the creation rather than the creation, because he says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through the things that have been made. And then in Romans 2.15, he mentions Gentiles. They're synonymous with a pagan, not just a non-Jew, though most Gentiles were pagans in Jesus' day. Um, He said, even though they've never seen a Bible, They've never seen the law. There are law in themselves, and they show the work of the law written in their hearts. And so they know from within that there's a God because their conscience affirms when they do what's right. It accuses when they do what's wrong. Who are they pleasing or displeasing? The God who created them. So here's the biblical principle. 
Light responded to brings more light. If a person responds to the light they have, God will bring more light, and ultimately he will get them the gospel. I was in India. I was in Delhi, or what we used to call New Delhi, and I met a man from a country north of Israel, I mean north of India, and he had never heard the name of Jesus before. And providentially, I met him on that sidewalk and shared the gospel with him, and he learned how to be saved and how to become a Christian. Accidental? No, providential. Why? Because light responded to brings more light. And God illustrates this in Acts 10 with Cornelius and his house. He responds to the house he has, the light he has, but he's not saved yet. How do I know? Because Acts 11, when Peter recounts the incident, tells us he got saved when Peter came. But because he responded to the light he had, God brought more light and God moved heaven and earth to get a gospel preacher to him. So God doesn't send someone to hell for having never believed in a Savior in whom he has never heard. They go to hell for having rejected the light that they have received and they have suppressed. And so I always bring it back to a person and I'll say, well, you can debate with me about those who have never heard, but there is absolutely no debate over those who have heard. Because Jesus said, the one who believes has life, the one who does not believe the wrath of God abides upon him. And so God is not cruel. God wishes that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. But you might want to get that book on the state of the unevangelized. Just write something like that, Carl Brogy, uh, Amazon, it will come up, and uh, that would be a good read for you. And you could even buy it and give it to your friend. And if they're open, I think it will be useful. Well, we're out of time today for the Bible line. Really glad that you could be with us as we've been searching the scriptures together. This is always posted later in the day for your purview and to share with friends. I hope you'll share it with friends. Send the links to friends that are studying the word and trying to get answers. God bless you as you walk with Christ.